If you take out your Bibles and turn to Daniel 1, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Confess there wasn't exactly a rhyme or reason for going to 2 Kings 5 or Daniel other than I really like to look at the Old Testament and to see Jesus in the Old Testament. This is God's word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this story, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The devil's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending, looks around on a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished 
and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's a little paraphrase from one of my favorite works by C.S. Lewis uh, called The Screwtape Letters. And I can't think of any better way to set up the book of Daniel and the situation in which Daniel and his three friends find themselves in this story, in this exile from the land of Judah in Babylon. We heard the Babylonian victory summarized in the first two verses. In the third year of the king uh, of King Jehoiakim uh, in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he put the vessels that were in the temple of Israel in the temple of his God and his treasury in that temple. So we see the Lord's hand behind the siege, right? The Lord gave Judah into their hand. The Lord turned Judah over in response to their national disobedience to his covenant. They had broken God's covenant and they brought upon themselves the penalty for their disobedience. But look at this from the perspective of Daniel before we meet him in chapter 1. The Babylonians are surrounding Jerusalem Daniel maybe is there with his friends. I don't know if they knew one another in Judah or if they met during the exile, but the end is drawing near. The Babylonians have us surrounded. Jehoiakim loses the battle. Jerusalem falls, and they are carted away to a foreign country. The implements of worship in the house of our God have been carried off to Babylon. They've been put in the temple of this false god in Babylon, a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished. Maybe that's how you see the world sometimes. Maybe it describes your experience sometimes. It may not sound very holy to say it, but sometimes we think, God, where in the world are you? Have you ever had a thought along those lines? You think, I'm finding it harder and harder to see where God is at work in my life, community, country, the world. Where are you? The book of Daniel can help us with this. I want to open this story not to show you some Old Testament superstar and his three exemplary amigos, okay? That's not the point of the Daniel story. That's not it at all. What I want you to see in this story is the power that kept these four young Hebrews faithful in a world where it looked to them as if God had vanished. What would keep us faithful in a situation like that? You can't dare to be a Daniel unless you actually are armed with the power that Daniel had to maintain his fidelity to God in this foreign land, in this land where he seemed to have been abandoned by God. The power that I'm talking about is the staying power of faith. Faith laying hold of God's presence, laying hold of God's promises even when he seems nowhere to be found. At the end of the day, that's really the big point of this story that I'd like you to take away from Daniel 1. And it's this, a life of conscience and courage is powered by faith in gospel promises. To live a life of conscience and courage, you have to be powered by faith in gospel promises. So let's walk through this story under three headings or three sections that I think will help us see the flow of the story. First, we'll see a tempting offer, and then we'll see Daniel taking a stand along with his friends, and finally, the telling ending of the story. First, let's look at verses 3 through 6, and we'll call this a tempting offer. Look there with me. In verses 3 to 6, we read about the king's command to his servant Ashpenaz to gather the best and the brightest for re-education, really reprogramming in the ways of the Chaldeans. So yes, these 
three young men are in exile, four with Daniel, but not to make it too simplified, but they get free college, they get fancy food from the king's own table, and they get a royal job offer in the palace. It's more complicated than that, right? I I don't want this to become a history lesson in all of the Babylonian culture and tradition and politics, but I, I think we can assume, right, we heard kind of as we read, there were a lot of things that would run contrary to God's law, a lot of things that they would be definitely unfamiliar with and certainly uncomfortable with. Uh, It certainly would be a test for their faith and discernment going through this education program. But this is what I want to point out. This all sounds like a blank check written for bankrupt exiles, right? You get to live in the palace. You get to be employed by the palace. You get to eat from the palace food, and you get to have a palace education. But it comes with a catch. You may have noticed the catch. The first way we see that it comes with a catch is that they had to change their names. That's the first indicator. It's not just, you know, you were Mike, now you're Melchizedek. It's, it's a little bit bigger than that. I remember a story about a, a, a kid in school, a friend of mine who was a school teacher in Kansas City. Uh, he told me this story. And he, he said that they, uh, on, on the first day of school, if a child had a, a foreign name that was difficult to pronounce, then if that child so chose, he could go by a different name. I know that can be kind of a cultural sensitivity landmine. Like, it's just a story that happened. A lot of my friends in school, uh, in college, you know, Adam was Sung Jong, but we knew him as Adam. And so that's kind of the way they, w- they would operate in this school. Um, so this kid, he comes up on, on the, the first day of school. He, he walks up to the teacher as he kind of signs in. Puffs out his chest, he's so proud, and he says, I want to be called Jose, right? A little kid, Chinese, I believe, if I recall. Um, And it always stuck with me because here's this kid who, you know, I would expect him to go with Adam or Matt or Joe or something like that. He says, I want to be called Jose because he's in a community. He's in a community with other little Latino friends, and he wanted to belong in this community. Even if, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in the name Dan. I don't know if you have like a very strong attachment to, to your name. We don't have the same, uh, put the same significance, at least on our first names, you know, as, as they did in the ancient times. But I think we get this idea of belonging. This idea of belonging that comes with it. So even if we don't put a lot of religious emphasis on this today, this was a very loaded situation. The new names that Daniel and his friends were given uh, was a religious statement. In essence, they were given a new identity. Their Judean names all had something to do with the God of Israel. You hear it when you hear Daniel, Misael. You have Yah, Azariah. These are all names connected with the true God of Israel. Their new names all relate to the gods of Babylon. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. We may not see Daniel and his friends really make a big deal about this, um, but it's significant. It's significant. These new names are a radically new identity that's contrary uh, to the worship of their one true God. So they're given this new identity, these new names, and uh, they're reoriented under the gods of a new culture, and they're expected uh, to, to really thrive in this, uh, the, what, the best education that the palace can offer in Babylon. They get to pig out on the king's delicacies. Uh, all of this is kind of a way for Babylon to recruit loyalty from those that they conquered, recruit from within, and then these people are then leaders over the conquered peoples. So maybe in a scenario like this, when it seems like God is absent, absent you feel like God has abandoned you, maybe you start to not worry about it so much anymore. 
Maybe it's a little easier to swallow with all of these offers from the palace. Maybe it is time to just hang it all up and uh, forget hope in God and just blend in. That's the struggle that they're facing in this story. It's a tempting offer to blend in, and it's a temptation that you face today and that I face today. I came across this quote from the founder of McDonald's. Uh, As it happens, he was an evangelical Christian, and he's reported to have said, I believe in McDonald's, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. But when I go to the office, I reverse the order. I reverse the order. That might help build a burger empire, but that's a really bad take on how to live the Christian life. How easy would it have been for Daniel and his friends to reverse the order? Or just do away with belief in God entirely. You know what? I believe in God. I'm a member of the family of Judah, but I'm at work. Here I'm Belshazzar. Hand me the burger, king. I'll eat from your table. I think this is where the story really comes home for us. We really need to think carefully about this. It might convict us of compromise when we consider Jesus' words to be in the world but not of it. It's so much easier, right, to be in the world and of it. But Jesus calls us to be in the world and not of it. This is the tempting offer that Nebuchadnezzar, the new king over Daniel and his friends, is offering them. And and it's the same tempting offer we face every single day. Check your identity in Christ at the school doors. Hide the name of Christ the next time you punch the time clock for work. Take the path of least resistance. More than that, reap the benefits that accrue to those who don't push back, who just blend in and don't make a big deal about it. It's a tempting offer that's on the table. Just blend in, take on a new identity, and don't make too much noise about God. So that's the, that's the offer, and it takes us to verses 8 through 16. This is where Daniel has to take a stand. Look with me there at 8 through 16. I'll, I'll read verse 8 as the key verse in this section. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The crisis in this chapter, this temptation to blend in, it's, it's admittedly a little underwhelming, I think. Uh, I mean, if you were a kid who grew up with flannel graphs in Sunday school, it's not as cool to see a platter of vegetables, you know, uh, on the little coloring page in Sunday school or what have you, than to see the, the fiery furnace and Daniel and his friends taking a stand or Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. I mean, chapter one is about refusing to eat food and eating vegetables, and it seems a little bit underwhelming as a start to this story. But there's a subtle danger here. There's a subtle danger because it's subtle, it's especially dangerous. Like most of the temptations we face every day, we usually don't face crises like the fiery furnace every day. We face subtle temptations that can destroy Some would go so far as to say that this tempting offer here faced in Daniel 1 is the most dangerous scenario in the book. Herman Veldkamp notes, uh, we should remember that the devil is in even greater danger in the world's dining rooms than in the den of lions. When we hear the sounds of the king's meal being served, when we hear the glasses clink, we should be even more on our guard than when famished lions open their mouths. I think that's really good. I think we need to ask two questions at this point to understand why Daniel takes his stand and how we can learn from it. First, what is the real issue here? What is the real issue? Why was it a big deal for Daniel to eat from the king's table? Why did he say this would defile him? 
There's a lot of debate on this. I think the most natural thing we instantly think of when we read the stories is think, oh, kosher, the laws of Israel where you couldn't eat this or that, and that's why Daniel doesn't eat that. may not be quite as simple as that. The word defile is a clue. It certainly has religious overtones to it. A lot of people just assume, uh, you know, that's because it says, I don't want to defile myself. They assume he's referring to these laws. Um, the problem with that is not everything listed that Daniel refused is actually prohibited for Israel. Um, not the wine, for example. Wine was allowed under Jewish law. So why does Daniel refuse all of this from the king's table? In my own view, I think those who see a covenant line in the sand being drawn here is right. You see this over and over in the Bible, this sharing of a meal that establishes a covenant between two parties. It's all through the Old Testament. I think as people who share a covenant meal together week after week, we can kind of resonate with that. We understand what that means. Uh, the word used here to describe the, the morsels that would have been offered from the king's table, it's unique to this chapter and to chapter 11. You don't find it anywhere else in the Bible. In Daniel eleven twenty six. it talks about the downfall of this future king that will come. And it says, even those who eat his rich food, potbag, shall break him. That's the food that Daniel's refusing. See, it's, it's a plot twist in, that, in, in Daniel 11. You would think that the ones in covenant with the king, those who eat his rich food, those who have established this covenant relationship, wouldn't be the ones to turn on the king and destroy him. It's this establishing of this covenant relationship. The only downside to this view, uh, some would point out, is that Daniel does eat vegetables. And I guess all I have to say about that is <clears throat> a guy's got to eat, right? So they have to eat something. They say, don't. They, they're not going to accept this meal that would establish this relationship with the king. Just give us what we need to survive, but we're not going to accept that. It's a bridge too far for Daniel to make a covenant with this king. So they refuse the meal of friendship, and basically they just request to stay alive, right? Um, just give us the vegetables. We don't need the king to sponsor us. We don't need him. We already have a covenant lord. There's faith here. They're keeping the faith. They're remembering the covenant with their God, and they say, he will take care of us. Of course, this is bad news for Ashpenaz. He said, I, I worry about my head. In our language today, we say, I think it will be off with my head if I do this. And you show up, you know, skin and bones, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill me. But his request is granted. God, again, is, is, on, the, is on the scene working, even though he seems like he has vanished. Verse 9, we have another hint that God really is there the entire time. And God gave Daniel favor. So after 10 days, he checks back in with the master. So beyond the new name and the new position and the king's palace and the education of the king's ways and culture, this has to be our line in the sand too. This has to be our line in the sand too. We can be in the world in a lot of ways, right? We work with people who are not Christians. We go to school and sometimes are educated by people who are not Christians in material that isn't inherently Christian, but switching covenant allegiances, that defiles. Doing things that makes us of the world, where we have put our hope in the world, our trust in the world, where we have aligned ourselves such with the system of the world that it will provide for us instead of trusting in our Heavenly Father. Uh, we read in James 4 in the New Testament that hearts aligned away from our covenant God do defile. They're called adultery. You adulterous people, James says, do you not know that friendship, this kind of friendship with the world, is enmity with God? You can't have it both ways. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
So the line in the sand for us is anything that is out of accord or runs contrary to our allegiance to God's covenant of grace with us in Christ. That's where we have to draw the line. Like Daniel, we can abide many things, living in our exile here on earth, living as God's people in a pagan culture. And like Daniel, we can be exemplary servants of being in this world but not of it. There's one thing we can't put up with, though. We can't accept. We can't give in. And it's realigning our allegiances to this world. So that's the line in the sand. Uh, We draw the line at placing our hope in this world system and the values and the promises of this world instead of the promises of Christ. We bank on bigger promises. We can, we can pass up on those offers the world gives us because we serve a bigger God with a bigger gospel. So this leads us to the second question, and it's, it's why does Daniel care? So we, we, we get maybe why he says this would defile me, but why does Daniel care? He's in exile. Isn't the covenant over? Didn't the nation blow it? He's now in Babylon. That's really the big question for Judah in exile. We can't assume that every person from Judah cared because that's why they're having this problem in the first place. Through national disobedience, they have been moved away from God's presence into exile. Leviticus 26.33 promised this in the covenant. It says, God says, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. It's the ultimate punishment promised for breaking this covenant made with Israel. That's what the exile shows us. God is true to his word. If God says there will be punishment, there will be punishment. Whether it's a word of life and blessing or word of punishment, God will be true to his word. The question, however, is this. Despite the exile, is there a promise of blessing that these exiles can bank on, even in the exile? Covenant's been broken. That's, that's over. But what are Daniel and his friends hoping in? What is their hope? Where are they putting their faith? Is there any hope of rescue? Is there anything to motivate them to faithfully follow God and trust that he has promised good things to those who love him? The answer is yes. There is a promise. There is a promise that came long before the nation's disobedience and that ultimately, ultimately will be the nation's salvation out of exile. Adam and Eve disobeyed. God was true to his word. They were removed from the place of God's presence. Israel, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, broke covenant with God and they're removed from the land of promise. And if that's all there is, obey me and it's good, disobey me and it's bad, there's no hope for sinners. The soul that sins will die. That's what the exile shows us. The ultimate judgment. The wages of sin is death. But there is good news. There is an ancient promise that never went away. It still held out hope. Paul says in Galatians 3, this is what I mean. The law, this covenant that's been broken, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously made by God so as to make the promise null and void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave Abraham a promise even though the promised punishment for disobedience in the national covenant with Israel is being carried out, the identity of God's people, his love on them is defined by an ancient promise, a promise that had never gone away and that still held out hope. That grace formed the bedrock of that relationship, not just the arrangement for staying in the land, which was a legal arrangement, 
this relationship that God had with his people was based on an ancient promise made to Abraham. Through Abraham, one would be born of his descendants, and all the nations would be blessed. His name is Jesus. The promise is Jesus. It's the promise of the gospel. That's what Daniel and his friends are hoping in. Daniel and his friends are banking on this. His faith was in a God who would be true to his word. Not just faithful in judgment, but faithful to his promise of grace. If God was true to his word of judgment, sending the people into exile for disobedience, then they could trust that he would be true to his word of promise that despite a universe in which every trace of God seemed to have vanished, he would fulfill his promised grace. He would fulfill it in a final redeemer to bring blessing, not just to Judah, but to everyone in the world. Exiles can return because this deeper promise of grace exists, the promise of Jesus, and we share in that covenant promise. We share in this promise. The promise that kept Daniel and his friends holding out hope in exile is the promise that you and I share in because of Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We have been brought near to these promises by the blood of Christ. That blood seals our allegiance. That blood commits us to Christ when the world offers us easier alternatives. Look at this table. We're going to be receiving a meal of grace from later. This is the food and drink of a better covenant. It's food and drink from a better king's table. So look with me at Daniel 1.14. The Lord gives Daniel favor, and here's how he and his friends fare in the test run for Daniel's humble request. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. One final movement in the story. We've seen the tempting offer, Daniel taking a stand. Let's draw the story to a close by way of conclusion, looking at the telling ending. Look with me at verses 17 to 21. The story wraps up with God's blessing poured out on these faithful Hebrew youths. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them, all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 21 especially, I'm going to skip to verse 21. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. These stories aren't sequential in the book of Daniel. This goes over the entire life of Daniel and ends with Daniel leaving in Daniel 1. I say this is a telling ending because it's not just what we expected, right? We knew all along that God would be faithful, that God would bless these young Hebrews' faith. But it also is a telling ending because it reveals God's final victory. God's hand was at work in verse 2. When Jehoiakim and Jerusalem were given over by the Lord, we're reminded that God is at work in verse 9. When the Lord gives Daniel favor in his very diplomatic endeavor to remain faithful, let us try it out and eat vegetables, God's hand had never disappeared, and here we see that another time. When he seems irrelevant, he is still present with us. When he seems to have disappeared and abandoned us, He has not abandoned us. He is very much present and powerful to save. This is the telling ending, though. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar's reign has, you know, come and gone. 
We'll see Daniel with a number of Persian kings. And who is still standing at the end of this reign? Daniel. Daniel's still standing. Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. Daniel is still standing. Others have come and gone. Through time and turmoil, here's Daniel still standing. And do you know who let the exiles return to their land? It was Cyrus. Faith and a promise. Faith that all was not lost. God's program of grace would be carried out through mercy on rebels, returning them to the land and ultimately raising up one from their tribe, from the tribe of Judah, a son of David, the Lion of Judah, a Redeemer named Jesus who gave his life to save sinners in desperate need of grace. And Daniel, he lived to see the wheels of grace in Christ put into motion as the tribe went home. And God's plan was carried out. God had not become irrelevant. God had not abandoned him. God had not vanished from the universe. His purposes were right on track. Let me tell you a story before we close. Alistair Begg tells this story in his new little book on Daniel called Brave by Faith. Great little book. I recommend it. In the 1920s, uh, Lord Reith helped establish the BBC. British Broadcasting Company. And then from 1927, he served as its first director general. He was a somewhat severe man, writes Begg, from the highlands of Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming output. People were no longer interested in it, he said, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, who was six foot six inches tall, stood up, told this young man to take his seat, and said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. To put it in the words of Jesus, in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, you don't stand firm for the Lord in the middle of trials like the ones these men faced by being really, really, really committed to standing firm. You stand firm because you, by faith, have laid hold of a strong God. You're not drumming it up within yourself. You're laying hold of Jesus, the promises of the gospel, the God that Daniel and his friends put their faith in. That's our God, and his promises are true. You can trust him. You can hold out hope even when it seems like you can't tell where God is working in your life. When you seem like you've been abandoned, when it seems like the universe is missing God, God is there, and his promises are true. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of those kings, the future being laid out for Nebuchadnezzar, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, that kingdom, will stand forever. There is a man from the tribe of Judah sitting on this kingdom throne. The throne of this kingdom. That man from the tribe of Judah is our Savior, Jesus On days when it's hard to see God at work, remember that throne. Do you look around and see the the problems that you're facing, or do you look to that throne of a kingdom that will never end? See, a life of conscience and courage is powered by faith, not in yourself, not in that things will be turned around for the better, not that things will kind of uh, be easier. It's powered by faith in gospel promises of a kingdom that will never go away. 
It's an unshakable kingdom for sinners who have received grace in Christ. So turn to him. Trust him in the middle of these, these moments when it seems like everything is lost. His word is true and his kingdom will never end. Let's pray. Father, we turn now to see you on that throne, to see our Savior seated on the throne at your right hand by faith. We see and we believe. We look forward to when our faith will be sight, when we won't have these moments of darkness where we feel like we've been abandoned. Help us, Father. I pray for every single person in this room. Maybe someone here this morning is sensing that you have abandoned them. I pray that you would show us your presence, even as we share this meal together now, that unites us more and more with Christ and one another. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.